Welcome to Find the Outside, the podcast. Today, we're talking with Cindy Suarez. If you will recall, Cindy was on in our third season, and we were so excited to talk with her, we asked her back. Cindy is the um, executive director of Nonprofit Quarterly, and she is really shifting the discourse in nonprofits uh, toward many things, innovation, racial justice, edge leadership. She's just shifting how the sector is thinking about making change. She also, many of you know, and we would have said last time, wrote the power manual, how to master complex power dynamics. And she is just full of ideas and life. And I think challenge to the way we think about things typically. Yeah. So buckle up people. Well, buckle up. This one's a ride. You are going to love it. Like this woman is incredible. She is like her, her thinking and her approach to how we might work to tackle some of what is in front of us now, I think, uh, is, is ground shaking. So enjoy. That's right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to dive in. And Cindy, I this is a strange place to start, and we might just edit it out. We might start someplace different. But I have to tell you, my mom likes me, okay? She's, a, you know, like she thinks I do pretty good in the world. But when she heard I was doing a webinar for Nonprofit Quarterly, she was just like, oh, what? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It was like I was so impressed because she used to work in nonprofits, right? And so she just like. Well, what does your mom do? My mom was a CFO of a nonprofit for years and years. And now she does our books. Mm. And so when she saw things come through, she was like, are you really going to be on a webinar? I mean, it was so funny. I was like, well, that's that's what it takes to impress my mom. That's cool. Mm That's so cool. Who would have thought that? Cindy, we got called celebrity facilitators this year. Yeah, for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, you've hired the celebrity facilitators. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. I can see that, though. I can see that. Yeah, uh, it's funny because I think that there is a thing and it's been happening for the last 10 years or so where facilitators have gotten to a point in terms of how they develop their selves and their work that they, it is like, it's almost like before, like the, like the DJ wasn't the main event, uh-huh. right? <laughs> they did the music, but now the DJ is so developed as a curator that they actually are the event. So I, th- I, see, I, I see it very similarly because I have a really good friend who's a DJ and I'm like, how are you a star now? Why is the DJ the star? But it's, it's a whole different thing right. to be a DJ Seriously. nowadays. Seriously. And uh, it's mm. funny because we started the outside to not put ourselves out in front because a lot of the clients we're working with, they needed to be relating to something that felt like an organization or an institution, right? They weren't like mm. to the, the scale and audacity and complexity of the challenges we were taking on in partnership with our clients meant that if it was Tim Merry, you know what I mean? Mm. And his and his friend in Mahone <laughs> Bay coming in to help you in Geneva with your global organization. For some reason, they weren't jumping on ship, you know, or Tuesday, Ryan Hart with her mm-hmm. mum as the financial manager, you know, but as soon as we become the outside, right. And it's like Tuesday and I, as the kind of principals and founders of a global organization that has practitioners in different parts of the world and offices in Ohio and Nova Scotia, there's some, there's something there where the comfort level goes through the roof. And we're able to really mm-hmm. be in the work together. So it's a funny juxtaposition of like, oh, you're the celebrity facilitators, but we've actually built an organization not to be that. <laughs> mm. Right? Because the 
in many ways, the power relationship was such that these institutions need to feel like they're working with an institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I right. totally get that. And I wanted to yeah. ask you, Cindy, if you've seen any difference since you started leading nonprofit quarterly. Like, so now you are mm. the face of an oh, institution, yeah. right? And so I'd love to hear you talk about that going from kind of a leading thinker and an author and certainly, an, you know, you had a high position there, but then going to lead that organization. I'm curious what you've seen shift yeah, I mean, I think that there is this kind of sense that I'm different because I've accomplished something that's considered unaccomplishable. Mm. Um, it's actually um, really, I'm the only, I think, woman of color. And I do know that there's Hiva who runs the um, the Humanitarian, which is the magazine for, that used to be with the UN and now mm. they're independent. Um, but it's very unusual to have people of color, especially women, running any media mm. platform. So I do feel that there is this, there is this, and it's, it's also the sense I think from people of color that they now have access to, to, mm -hmm. to this platform. Um, so there's just a, yeah, there, there, there are differences. And I think because of the work that I've done, which is to me, just kind of like doing what I think should be done, right? To me, it's kind of like, like the issue that we have currently on pro-black, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. creating mm -hmm. more pro-black, right? So that comes out of the field, people that are really on the edge, really wanting to. I mean, I think I ask questions because of my orientation towards the edge of work and towards like, what is it that people need to like pay attention to? Like, I don't really ever focus on or design mm. for the middle. I've always been really curious about people mm -hmm. at the edge. Um, and, it, and, it, and that comes to me from, from the work of Tony Fry, who wrote this book, um, Design as Power. And he's an urban designer. He talks about this, about how the need for edge leaders and those are the leaders that he says are looking over the gap and the precipice of current forms and really comfortable enough with that sort of state of not knowing that they can create the new mm -hmm. forms. And he talks about how those people oftentimes are very small in number, but they don't have to be. They can just be like 1% or even half a percent. Of, like very few mm -hmm. people need to be there. But they, knew, they do need to be there. They do need to be supported. And then all the other folks who are in systems trying to change them, they need to like be able to look at the horizon mm -hmm. that they're going towards. And when he said this, I thought, oh, I wonder if that's true, you know? And when I started talking like this and working like this and really resourcing MPQ and shifting our focus to that, I actually I totally mm. matched up. Leaders would say to me, I know I'm not at the edge, but I want to be with mm. those people at the edge. People were unashamed about it. They were like, I know I'm just trying to change systems. I know I'm inside. I need someone out there doing what I need so that I can say, this is what we need to do, right? Which I think is really critical right now because in particular with the changes going on in the sector, there are some, you know, pretty significant shifts around major organizations now being handed yeah. over to people of color, mostly women of color, yeah. mostly black women. And they're being asked to really change um, sometimes decades long established practices and forms. And oftentimes... You know, without any support other than personal, I, I, wrote, I wrote an article about this. Um, I think it's called something like leaders of color are, are at the forefront of the sector's challenges. But I get calls from those women all the time. It's mostly women, some men. And they're looking for what is the leadership now? What is the leader now? The things that people are asking me to do, the stuff that my, stuff, that my staff is asking me to do. Um, to create new ways of being, to create new forms that are more egalitarian, to all the stuff that sometimes at odds with yeah. what funders or their board is asking them to do. There's a lot of tension there around just how to lead, what, what is legitimate mm -hmm. at this point. <laughs> and those are questions that I think are sector level questions, but they're being handled at the individual leader and organizations level. 
So it's even more critical, I think, now to really support the edge and to really, because like someone has to be, I mean, I get calls from people who are like, do you have a model for this? Or do you have an idea or someone I can talk to that can help me develop that? And I oftentimes don't. Like a lot of the things that people are asking for don't mm-hmm. currently like exist. And I say that with quotes because they're probably out there, but they're not seen yet. And so I talk about that a lot at the edge. And I think that um, I guess the second part answer to that question about how it feels to be at MPQ right now is that because there are leaders like that, um, and because I have a unique role um, as leading this media organization, it, it actually creates a lot of mm. momentum because all of us can connect to each other and we have relationships and we support each other. Um, so that is really nice. How, how do you find each other? You know, I think for me, it's pretty easy because I work um, in a really visible way. Um, but I think people find each other through um, cohorts mm. that they're often part of, oftentimes led by funders, uh, which I don't think is necessarily the best model. Um, mm. I oftentimes also get invited because of the book that I wrote to talk to groups of cohorts that are working because almost everyone's working on power. And, you know, I think my book is the main book right now on power. And um, I just get a lot of calls. And I think the other part of that is that I can't respond to like 99% of the requests that I get. And things that I say no to now feel absurd. There are things that I would have really killed for in the past <laughs> that I can't do, right? Like huge foundations, what I'm going to do, like major pieces of work to transform major parts of the sector. And I'm just like, I don't have time for that. And they're, they're like, what would you mean you don't have time? And, you know, so that's kind of hard. I think I've, I, when I started, and even before I came into this role, when I was writing and my work started to really catch the attention of the field, I started to feel like I couldn't hold everything that was coming my way. Like in terms of story ideas, like when I first started, you know, I was writing a story a day and after a while, you know, people sometimes say, oh, I can never write a story a day. How, how, well, how would I ever come up with that many ideas? But I was quickly in a place where I had five stories a day and I had to pick one to write. Um, you know, so it's, it's just like there is a sense of when something isn't um, or maybe hasn't been done that way before. And then people see it in a time and the environment, everything aligns to really want something to happen. There is a way that that can be. You know, and I'm really careful about the words I chose, I choose, but I used to, I, I had to try to not use the word overwhelming. And instead I talk about it as learning to live with abundance because I now have to make choices among many different amazing things. And I think that's a good place to be. Um, and I, I was thinking before that it wasn't that common, but I think because of where we are now, especially after COVID, I think more and more people are in that position. I think I talk to many people that are like, I'm doing this amazing work that I never thought that I, I would be doing. And I think there's something that's broken through um, in the past year that's really leading to more, I don't know, people just really, maybe it's just people just decided they're just going to do what they're going to do. You know? But I, I see that change where I see a lot of people really doing amazing work and getting paid what they think they should get paid. Although I know that's not common for everyone at this point. I, I'm aware of that. I'm doing a lot of research and looking into at the moment what I'm calling default leadership, which is a lot of uh, people who come from very similar contexts of me, you know, multi-generational wealth, access to, uh, you know, what would be called the highest standards of education, end up defaulting into positions of power in all areas of human endeavor because of the backgrounds they come from, the access they have had, the privilege they've had access to, and the networks they're part of. Right. And often these leaders aren't actually very well equipped because of their backgrounds to lead in highly complex, rapidly evolving circumstances. They're not they're not actually the best equipped leaders 
for kind of a modern 21st century context. And, and I can go into mm. that, but there's lots of, lots of reasons for that. And um, which is just interesting in itself that you've got these default leaders going into positions they're not equipped to lead within. But, um, but I just became, when you were talking, I became really interested in, uh, you know, what is it like for leaders of color to be turning up in positions that often uh, people like myself who come from privilege and access have been defaulting into, sometimes for generations? Like, what's that experience? I just genuinely am curious, like, like, what are you hearing is that experience, you know? And because if, if I think about the experience of me or people who I went to school with, they walk into those situations, but they also have a default network as they walk into that situation. They have a default relationship up and down that hierarchy and into elders who've been in those organizations. And, and I was just, yeah, what's the experience? What are you hearing is the experience? I think I'll share what I'm hearing and then what I experienced because I, I think, and it's not just for leaders. It's almost, we're at a time where a lot of people are trying to grab a person exactly. and put it by yeah. the organization, right? Time. <laughs> Big time. Different levels. But I think, I think, and also as I hire for positions at MPQ and I'm looking for, for example, editors and senior editors and things like that, if I put out a job description for, say, racial justice senior editor, I will almost get no applications for people of color. Hmm. I will get most applications from really high-level journalists from New York Times, Washington. I mean, get hundreds of them, which is not what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for someone with a certain kind of, you know, not trying to be objective necessarily, mm. but really like having a strong, you know, knowledge of the field and really just it's a whole different thing that we're hiring for. So I oftentimes have to call people that I know are qualified and who mm. would be interested but didn't apply, and I'll say, why didn't you apply for this position? Mm. And they're like, I'm not qualified. Mm. I don't understand why you think I'm qualified. Mm. And then I have to spend time convincing them that they're qualified and it starts to feel like a reverse interview, right? And so <laughs> that's one thing. I hear a lot about imposter syndrome, which I frankly don't get at all. Um, and I think, you know, part of being in privileged spaces and elite spaces, both, you know, I, I grew up working class in a working class community, but through education and it's now through my daughter and my, my children, you know, we're able to have them have access to higher level education than I even I had. Um, it's very demystifying to be around people who are privileged because you realize they don't know anything. And <laughs> you're like, how the hell did they get in here? You know what I mean? So for me, so my daughter, for example, um, she graduated last year. She was at Yale and she was at Windsor before, which is like a really elite private school here in Boston. And we quickly realized that those kids weren't, I mean, she was, mm. she was like one of the, I mean, it was just like she won the the award. She was in, she was like one of three black girls, right? Um, and yeah, she was just like, mom, all these kids got in because their parents gave money and like they all have like seven tutors, one for each subject. And it's just like, so it's very demystifying. Mm. And then I think even for myself in, in nonprofits, you know, so my daughter actually right now is doing a series of short films for MPQ through, the, through our edge leadership work, which is our research and development part of the platform. And um, they're, they're satire. There's three short stories that she developed in concert with leaders in the sector around the main issues that we wanted to get some kind of real different types of content out there around. And one of them is called Mediocrity is Not the Standard. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the flip side, you know? So there's like, on the one hand, you have many folks who are like, 
I can't believe I'm here. And you know, it's even more challenging because what I'm being asked to do is way more than what anyone before me was asked to do. And I don't really have to support or, you know, all those things. And at the, at the same time, a lot of what was there before just wasn't enough, but it was considered to be the standard. And, the, and sometimes when you come in as a leader of color and you're like brilliant, not only do you not realize it, but the system doesn't realize it because mediocrity is the standard. Brilliance is not, sometimes not seen or considered to be so uncommon. Mm. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of like in general what I see those two. But I see a lot of folks, you know, especially around writing and knowledge creation, because that's what MPQ does. There's a lot around that. You know, leaders of color are, haven't been seen traditionally as the people who hold the knowledge that we need right now. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And, it's, it, and there's a lot of trauma for people, too. That's the other thing I realized. It's very emotional. And, um, yeah, it's almost like there's a threshold you have to step over. Mm. And I, I wish there was more support in helping leaders realize that. First of all, that the things that they're being asked to do need to have wider support and are not just at their level. Yeah. And, and second, that they need that kind of, um, yeah, that kind of, like support, for example, if you're a leader of color and you're, into, you're coming to an organization that was run by a white person before, you're probably going to have to change a lot of systems and flows and processes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because yeah. that, you know, at MPQ, when I, when I came in, in this role, there actually weren't that many processes. Some leaders just run things in a way that it's just their personal, they're just the leader and you just talk to them about any, everything mm -hmm. that has to happen. Mm -hmm. So leaders of color either have to change them or create systems, even if the organization is 30 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who do you call? Who do you call to do that? Exactly. Right? Who do, how, how do you develop that? You know, and, and for me, as someone who studied forums and all that, I, I think because I've been so, I've been that consultant, I've been doing that work, I can come in and do that and it's still really hard. Yeah. It's still really hard to create systems and to do the daily job and to fundraise and to write in my case. So it, it's really a lot. There's this book that I refer to a lot um, called The Requisite Organization, which I think you guys know because I was one of, the, one of your partners in, in, I think, Switzerland had um, referred, referred me to it. But it's about how hierarchies should be set up if they're to be functional. And he talks about how there are seven levels of any hierarchy because there are seven levels of thinking. Mm. And a hierarchy should only exist if it's able to manage more complexity than the level below, mm. right? And so the highest mm. level of the hierarchy is to be able to create forms. So you can run an institution, you can run a system that's already been created, you can do it, but to actually be able to create and change forms is actually the highest level of thinking. And so I think it's above just running the system, right? So, and, and then this guy says, if your leader doesn't know how to do that, the organization stops at the level at which the leader enters, right? If, you, if your leader doesn't know how to create systems, but they know how to maybe run systems and you need new systems, that organization is not going to get new systems. Maybe that leader doesn't even realize that that's what's needed. So I often get a lot of leaders that come and say, everyone wants me to change what we're doing. Like, what are, mm. what are the models? And almost like it's not something that they should be, have to do. But the way I look at it, it's like, actually, this is the role mm. of leaders yeah. right now. That's right. You are being asked to change these organizations. Right. You are being asked to translate across many different constituencies. Yeah. So I think of those as like being able to design forms and translating and, and enrolling across different constituencies as two of the highest skills that we need right now that we don't talk about. I have leaders to tell me, I've had a, I, had, I had a funder, the head of a foundation tell me, I can't give you this grant because I can't explain and convince my board to do what you're, to, to, to fund what you're doing. 
And I said, well, that's your job. <laughs> it's your job right. yeah. to like right. translate what I'm that's doing right. to your board. It's not okay if you tell me you right. can't do it. I love that. I love that. So Cindy, so, so people are coming to you, they're needing models, they're not available. Is that, I wanted to ask you about the edge network specifically. And like, is that, is that the place leaders can go? So there's like this piece around the edge network and what you're doing there. Or is it like, I just know that this needs to happen for leaders. So that's one part, edge network. The second is, I feel like you said a really provocative thing that I just don't want to go past, which was around, you are asked to talk to leadership cohorts and be that foundations or you're like, and I'm not even sure that's like really the way to do things. And I'm like, wait a second. That is the way that we're hearing all the time. In fact, I just watched a very prominent webinar that was talking about creating leadership cohorts, that that's what people of color need and that that's like the way to build kind of this gap in skills. And so I'd love to hear about the edge network and I'd love to hear you say more about cohorts and what you're seeing and what do you think is needed? You know, I, so like I said, a lot of these cohorts are um, dealing with power. Oftentimes they're reading my book and they invite me to come talk to the leaders. And when I get on a Zoom call and I see maybe 30 faces, they don't always look happy. They look like they've been brought together. And, and when I've been mm. part of cohorts, I actually get off of those calls with headaches, um, just feeling like really strained by the interactions. Mm. And I often wonder like, why do we feel like this? You know, and it's oftentimes because funders or people will get them together to talk about all the problems that they have mm. as it doesn't somehow make anything better, right? Um, what it does is actually make you feel really overwhelmed. I mean, maybe mm. for some people having their relationships is good and feeling that alone is good, but that's not enough. And it's certainly not enough for me. Um, I think what's, what's needed, I mean, and often we'll hear people say, oh, um, the leaders really liked what you provided. They want more. And I think that what people really want is actually a space to grapple and, and create the forms yeah. and tr experiment with them. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that's what's needed. And is Edge the space for that? Yes, we do things like that on Edge. And Again, it's a matter of capacity because we're being asked to do way more than currently, um, you know, trying to get the staff that can come in and kind of run those products. And it, it's really different to run or to host spaces that are liberatory, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's a whole different kind of um, energy and, and it takes someone who can take what's coming at them and create on the spot and test and feel yeah. comfortable with failure and, um, so it takes a lot to host those kind of spaces. And I would say that if I, if I had, if I could hire 10 leaders like that, I could easily have 10 programs running tomorrow because it's not the money, actually. Mm -hmm. The money comes pretty easily right now, surprisingly. Um, but I think what is needed in, in terms of combining those two questions is a space, and this is something that we're actually working to develop, um, again, with MPQ and with the work that we're doing and, and how it's visible, it's, it's, I have to be careful when I design to develop, decide to develop something because it often comes to reality pretty mm. quickly. Uh, and then I have to run it <laughs> or find someone. And so I'm, I'm like, I have 10 projects. I can't have 10 projects. I have to look. So, but the one that I really, really want to do, and I'm, I'm already talking to people about it is I want to create like a project this year that is aimed at creating a learning space. And I, I use that like in quotes because I'm not sure that it's gonna look like anything we've had before. It might be combinations of things we have, but at a higher level, and that's just how evolution works, right? And it, well, we, so it might have webinars, it might have you know, ways that people get together. It might have ways that people can experiment, but the point is to have a space that designs for those leaders of color. So the designs, forms, tests out, supports, 
those leaders of color who are at the edge mm. because everyone else will benefit from that, you know? Mm. Um, and so we want to have, you know, a group of those leaders that we're talking to in a conversation with that we're designing for. Um, we want to bring people that can resource that well um, so that, it, you know, knowledge creation and creation of, of forms is just like a whole different um, area of work that has to also be resourced, mm-hmm. you know? So we're perfectly positioned to do that at MPQ. You know, we already have all the elements of that. And I think that that is going to be very fruitful. And I can imagine that what comes out of that, because right now when you talk to people who are experimenting, like I've been to a few workshops on liberatory leadership or, um, you know, liberated governance. And, you know, you go to these workshops and you think, oh, form, a model, you know, and maybe the new thing is beyond forms and models. But what you mostly hear is people's experiences trying to do this. And so that's what we are right now. You hear a lot of like, well, we're trying to do this and this is what we're learning so far. And so, and, and people always say, there are no models. Maybe we don't even need models. So I'm like, I'm kind of wondering like, mm. really? Or is it just that we're at a point where those models don't exist yet? Or is it that we don't think that way? So, because it's not considered an aspect of leadership. So I have questions about where we are. Mm. Um, and, and they're exciting questions for me. You know, I think I hear a lot of these conversations and they're almost like almost like highways in my brain and i'm like okay where 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 do we go like Mm. what's real is it really because i think that in the in the field right now um and it's it's really interesting because i mentioned earlier the phenomenon of man which i'm really intrigued by as i study transformation for this work that i'm doing a series of, of articles on it well he talks about how the way that we evolve is through our desire to see more and our desire to see more than what we currently see gets us to groping mm. <laughs> towards that future that we want. Mm-hmm. And then when we start to bring it into the present, we start to have these ideas of it and that it takes time to develop them into forms. And he says, when you get a form, you almost also have to be careful, right? Because the form oftentimes, the more solid it is, the more it ends the evolutionary process. Uh, uh. <laughs> so there's this tension between groping and finalizing a form so this is super geeky, but I've been like, okay, how do you design forms that are not permanent? So as I experiment, and like, for example, we created this project called the Voice Lab, which is a year-long cohort, which of course you, you know, because you came to talk there recently Tuesday, but you know, people are like, oh my God, we need a cohort for funders. We need a, we need a Voice Lab for this. We need a, and I'm like, well, this is just an experiment. People are like, you can't not ever do this again. People are like, when's the next one? When can I sign up? And I'm like, do I, does it have to become a permanent mm. program? I know that's how we mm. think in the mm-hmm. sector. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's this tension between all the, ex- all the experimenting that we're doing and people's desire to turn it into like an ah. institute in a form that continues right. forever and you can access. Right. Um, so yeah, those are some of the tensions. It's so artistic. It's, it's, inc- it, it's incredible. Just like everything. I mean, even when you talked earlier on about the, 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 kind of like highest level within a hierarchy is the creation of forms. Like that is an artistic endeavor. It so is, right? Tim. It's so smart of you to get that because we, so part of the work that I've been doing now and I've been doing this for a while is I switch, even though strategic processes, like when I take tests on like, you know, there's like a sort of strength finder book where you can test yeah. like your, your, your highest uh-huh. skills. Like my uh-huh. highest skill is, um, strategy yeah. right the ability to see patterns and, and cut, like all that but strategy process strategic processes which is what we're used to in our sector that's like what we aim for 
they're actually really not effective as much anymore, right? They're mm. almost just like a higher process, which is the creative process, which has strategic process as part of it, but it's a higher level. And we're not very familiar with that process. Right. And that process, you know, was articulated by, um, what is his name? I have his book. He wrote, um, oh, I have to, I have to get that to you, but he, he was the first to articulate the process and it has four parts, right? Two of which are active and two are passive. Mm where you do something, you sit, you let it germinate, you go back, you know, it, there's this process that's very different from strategy. When you're trying to create something you don't know, mm-hmm, it's so right. different. And I feel like we're not there as a sector yet. I've been wanting to write an article on creative process for a while. Um, but that's the process that I use. And the, the thing about creative process is that it's yeah. fun. Hmm. People are like, how yeah. are you having fun? I'm like, because the creative process is right. fun. Even when, the, <laughs> even when the content itself actually can, is dark, yes. is difficult, the, the the process itself, the generative process, the creative process, the journey of discovery can be fun, can be joyful even. It feeds yeah. you. Yeah. It feeds your yeah. soul. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get these you get these eruptions of something that you didn't imagine before. I mean, it's very um I love it. It's very erotic, actually. Mm-hmm. I think the process of creation is very powerful and mm-hmm. very generative. And I, I I, I really think that that's one of the big shifts that we have to make in the field to at least start working from that. Mm-hmm. Well, and Cindy, so that, I mean, I love everything you're saying. I love it. And I'm curious how these leaders that come to you to ask for support and advice um, or the people in the edge network or the folks in the voice lab, how do you help them get, because what you're describing to me feels like not only like an orientation shift, but but like a real shift in beliefs and mm. you know it's not, you know it's not just like oh, oh you know oh it's artistic it's like my belief in how change can happen and how it does happen and is a real set of shifting beliefs and i'm curious how you're working with that either with your staff or with your cohorts or that's such a great question tuesday i think that one of the things and i've written about this before is this idea that all change takes time i think that maybe it's a strategic mm. process approach i think change is also sudden it's just shifts, right? Mm. The deepest <laughs> changes are shifts. They're jumps in state. Um, and those things happen almost instantaneously when something comes together and clicks, mm. right? And so I think that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard. I, I think, so for example, in the voice lab, you know, we went through a three month period of visioning, mm-hmm. right? Before we could get to like the six months of creating a portfolio and then publishing. It took three months to get leaders to unhinge themselves mm-hmm. from all of the, mm-hmm. and it's, it was really amazing to watch from all of the restraints that it takes to rise up in a nonprofit sector as a leader of color. Mm-hmm. It, it was actually an amazing thing to watch because when people came in, we asked them what they wanted to do. And a lot of the times it was just like a little next step to what they were already mm-hmm. doing. And they were also con- conflicted about that. Mm. <laughs> they often talked about feeling shackled by that, even though that's what they felt they had to do. And after three months of working on this at different levels from like personal to like what's your legacy, they all came out of that in a place where they were so, they were like, I mean, and for some people, I remember one woman said, you know, I'm really mourning right now because I realized and I'm 50, I forget how old she was, 50 something, that I have not been free mm. for the past 50 something years. And I didn't realize that. Mm. And so the process that people went through was incredibly emotional. <laughs> so mm. the smallest creation shifts are very emotional. People came out of that with really broad visions that had to do with 
I think almost all of the vision statements that people came up with had the word heart in it. They all wanted to be different. Mm. And so now that they're working towards creating something, there's another threshold that they have to pass through, which is just believing that they can and then just doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and for many leaders, it's like, well, time. And there's all these ways that like we... we because really to do this, you have to change your life. Mm. You can't, you know, you, mm. you, you have to protect your, your visions. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of, and this is one of the things that I love from the phenomenon of man. He talks about that the, that the more that we evolve, the more we become inner centered, the more we're driven by our inner, which becomes clearer to yeah. us. And the more our inner life becomes clearer to us, the more it becomes forms. So mm. one of the things that I love about him is that he talks about how evolution has been studied so far as um, external forms that shift over time. Yeah. And he's like, those forms are secondary. The real shift is a shift in consciousness. And when you look at consciousness shifts evolutionary wise, you see that they are bigger now and in shorter time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this Mm -hmm. idea that we have to wait a really long time for anything to change is just a lack of vision right now and a lot of just being constrained by the current framework that we have for change. Mm -hmm. And I think once people get to that point, even when I talk about this, it seems like, People look at me like, like almost like I'm an alien, right? It's just such a different way of thinking about it. But I don't know. For me, it's just really the only way I can work. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the way to deal with what's going on right now in the world, right? To, if you think about it in terms of strategy and what's the next small shift we can make that's going to take a long time, we're just not going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> no, we have to just think differently about this. We just finished uh, yesterday. We did a, we did a five month cohort. First time that we've done it. First time we've done any real kind of capacity building that's been public, as opposed to like in the midst of delivery work with kind of clients or partners mm. on these large scale changes. And we we finished it yesterday. And and uh, and, I, and I was texting Choose last night, and I was being like, oh, you know, I felt, I felt like it went really well, but like I feel a little deflated. You know, it's like okay, like now what? You know what I mean? Like and. Mm. Uh, and Choose was brilliant because she Choose right back and was like, "Well, it's like we've done we've done everything we needed to really get to work now. We've done all of the we've done an enormous mm. amount of work on belief shifts and relationships building and restructuring of the models and forms through which we might take action, you know. And then the cohort's over, you know." <laughs> And it's like, and then when we're doing when we're doing client work or partner work, you know, like that's the point at which we really get to go kick ass together. You know, when those kinds of changes take place, suddenly we really get to be in the foray of discovering what the future might be because the ground has been laid, you know, and it was such an astute kind of sense making for me of the feelings I was in and, and, uh, you know, which I think is somewhat reflected in what you're describing of that first, that first three months, you know, and then being like, okay, well, what are we going to do with that? You know? And, um, yeah. And of course, it it kind of yeah. left me feeling like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, uh, you know, the 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 cohorts that build these capacity that do capacity building, of course, it's insufficient. Of course, it's mm. insufficient in some ways, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. As I think about what you're saying and what I hear from people, I think about, and I'm always thinking about new forms are needed, uh, and I think of forms as elegant, right? Like they have to be designed in a way that they're as simple as possible and can hold them the most it can hold. This is how nature does it too, when it's getting to the point of really being developed. And so I think about what I'm hearing from people and 
our leaders just want a space to go vision. I hear that everywhere I go, mm-hmm. just like a place to drop in and vision, like a place to recharge, you know, because there's this expansion contraction to just energy in the world anyway. Right. So if you're always contracted and you don't have those moments of expansion, like how do you sustain yeah. yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about that often when we're working with groups and we've got some kind of retreats. Like it's like we're going to actually slow everybody down for the next two days or five months, you know, and for some of you, that's going to feel really uncomfortable. But what we're deliberately trying to do is slow you down enough so you can start seeing the bigger picture of what is taking place in yourself and in your life and in your organizations Mm -hmm. and then be able to start making some of the higher level strategic choices that can have significant impact rather than just constantly dealing with the urgency of the day to day, you know, and, uh, and there's, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's an enormous thirst for that, especially with the barrage of information that we're all being saturated with day by day, that opportunity to stop and breathe, and, and mm. know myself more fully so I can act from that place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's this man, Sean Ginn, right? He just wrote this book called The Four Pivots. Um, and he talks about this. He was actually at Geo and he gave a talk. Um, and, you know, leaders always want, and it's, you know, there's all these ways of being that are considered to be just the way leaders are supposed to be, but they're actually very supremacist and very like limited or just not the only way. But, you know, people will be like, want to know what they can do. What is it that I have to do? Mm-hmm. And he always pushes people to like, it's not what you need to do. It's how you need to be. And for me, that became really um, just, I think, almost like written into like my, 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 my nervous system through really looking at how mushrooms function. Mm-hmm. And people often refer to mushrooms and, and it, because they're cool. And, you know, oftentimes I feel like there's so much more depth to that, the way that they are than we think. Like people think that mushrooms are beneath us in terms of evolution, but they're actually above us, right? That's why people take them to expand their consciousness. And so when you think about how mushrooms function, mushrooms don't have to try to do anything. They just are. There's this way of being that they're very connected and they don't just have one connection. They have multiple connections to the same type of thing that they're looking for. And everything comes to them effortlessly. They don't really have to move around doing stuff in order to accomplish all that they accomplish, right? <laughs> so the resources are within grass and it comes to them and they just like sit there chilling, like just kind of moving all the stuff underground. And I had this really vivid experience of that. And so it really has shaped my work. And I had this experience before I took on this role because I was really resistant to take on a role of, um, of a leader in an organization. And I was like, I don't really want to spend all my time trying to chase money. And then I was like, well, what if I didn't, think that I have to do that, even though that's the Mm, common way of thinking about it. I'm always like, well, what if I didn't have to do the thing that I really don't want to do, but I feel like I have to do? So I said, well, what if I just thought about and just focus on the fact that everything I want will come to me? What if I just, you know, and one of the things that I've learned about transformation is one of the first steps after you go through the process of identifying is you just have to start acting as if what you want is true. So I have to say that in this last year, I haven't asked for money like once. I think I just asked a big funder for money. And they were like, yeah, sure. And it was a lot of money. And, you know, it's very easy. And it's the most money we've ever gotten at MPQ. It's just been our most productive year um, in that in that sense of, of finances. And so I really often don't even share the way I approach my leadership because I feel like sometimes it's just too far out for people. Mm-hmm. And I also have to protect and remind myself um, because some, if I say anything similar to that, people will say, and oftentimes it'll be other black women. They'll say, oh yeah, honey, that's how it is now. But wait, in a year it's going to dry up and you're going to be struggling. So there's all these things that I have to say, no, no, that's not going to happen to me. 
matter what they say. And so there's a, there's a way in which I feel like I have to protect my beliefs mm. because I feel like right now they're not the norm, yeah. but I see them working for me like without fail. <laughs> and so that's part of my experimentation. Mm-hmm. I'm always like, well, what if I don't? And I think part of that is that I've gotten really comfortable with risk which is not always a good thing. I've just had to. Um, and then I spent, before I did this, I spent many years feeling like I was in free fall. Mm. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. But I just can't keep doing what I'm doing anymore. You know? And so I, that has taught me faith. Mm. And that is one of the hardest things to come by. To just believe that you're going to be fine, even though you're doing stuff that no one says you can do, it's just a crazy way to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's what I mean about protecting it, right? And oftentimes when I go into spaces, that are designed for me, they're not designed with that intent. So I don't go there. And, and, and you know, sometimes I feel like a jerk. I'm like, yeah, I don't like any of these spaces, you know? But I do, I do feel like I have to protect my yeah. beliefs and my, my yeah. approach. Mm-hmm. To be, and, and, and more and more, I find myself just spending a lot of time by myself internally, meditating or whatever, thinking, contemplating. Like, and I'm like, am I becoming like a hermit? But then I'm glad to read that that's actually a sign of how we evolve, right? We become more clear internally. And so that's how I get my sort of like propelling force in my work. Um, I do get it from other people, but I think a lot of it because of where I am right now, what I'm focusing on comes from me staying connected and anchored. And Cindy, I would, I, I love what you're saying. I, and I also think it's really brave, right? I think it's like a, a brave way to think about leadership and, and creating and evolving. And I'm curious when you say I protect my beliefs, you know, I, I kind of, I don't even necessarily tell people that this is what I'm believing as these things are happening in the world, right? Like, right. So you can't publish this. I'm curious, what are the, pro- I mean, I, I, because we have a bit of a, we have a relationship outside of here. I'm, cu- but I'm curious, like, what are the practices by which even you started to mention some by which you kind of tune in to that inner voice and have the courage to move from there? What does that look like in your daily life to protect those beliefs and, and be centered enough to move from there? Yeah, it's actually something that it's not an easy thing because it's also tension around that because, um, you know, trying to protect your beliefs while you're in a relationship with people is a dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I recall an incident last year where I was in a space that was supposed to be like a ritual, very transformative space. And I was just having a really expansive experience and someone wanted to hear what was going on for me. And when I shared it, they were very well-intentioned. They were trying to be supportive, just really trying to connect with me. And, and, and themselves very much similar in, in their approach to life. And all the questions where um, it's almost like the way that I looked at it, it's like this person is only offering me doubt. Mm. So when I would say something, I would say, are you sure that happened? Did that happen for real? Or did you just imagine it? Or was it a vision? And I was just kind of like, it's real, dude. It just happened. It happened in a different dimension, but it's uh, fucking real. You know? uh-huh. So I feel uh-huh. like that's what I mean. You know what I mean? And then I like, kind of like saw myself in that, in that instance, just getting up and walking away. Mm. Right? Just, this is another, and in the same situation, another person came up to me who's struggling with where he is in his career. And he was like, how did you get to where you are? Because mm. now that, you know, not to support people think I'm like, quote unquote, successful, right? And so, which to me is just, I've just been doing what I've been doing all along. It's just kind of accumulating, right? But it's considered success on the outside, right? So this person was like, how did you get to the point where you are right now? And I said, well, I really had to focus a lot on what I really wanted and really focusing on what you really desire is actually like the work of liberation. And it's not easy. It sounds mm. really like frivolous, 
But tapping into what you really desire is just, that can take a lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so as I talked to him, he was like, oh, and he started to share all the shackles. He started to use the word, well, I can't do that because I have this and that, and I have all these shackles. Mm. And I said, well, okay, so what are you passionate about? And in like a 10 minute conversation, he couldn't tell me what he was mm. wanting. He could only talk about shackles. And so I, I, I got up and I said, you know, I can't keep talking about shackles. And I just walked away. Mm. And then I thought, I can't be like that. I can't, I have to be able to still connect with people, right? Mm. So it's a tension for mm-hmm. me, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, yeah, the things that I'm doing and, and the way that I am, maybe that's something that people want to understand more. And maybe that's part of my work in terms of like where I am to share that. Um, so I just feel like I'm, that's what, what I'm learning. I'm trying Love to learn it. how to do that and not have to protect myself so much, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working right now on a book on edge leadership and um, the, I have five characteristics. The first one is personal sovereignty, which in my research, I realized is defined as being able to protect and cross your boundaries. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at the work on transformation, I realized that one of the foundational definitions is to be able to consciously expand your con- your boundaries at will. Mm-hmm. So I think about this idea of boundaries <laughs> between ourselves and others as like just like a permanent state or location for um, for work. You know. So I think that's how, in terms of practice, that's my day to day is those conversations that I have with people. And how the words that I use, what I get back, and then how I'm able to respond in the moment based on how, how I'm feeling. Whether I feel like I have to keep protect myself or whether I feel free enough to be able to share and keep talking and not feel like I have to protect myself, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the day to day. I think in, in, in other ways, it just comes from really um, keeping my consciousness at a certain level that involves reading and involves just, it's, it's really an area of focus. It's, it's just a way of, um, you know, I have a spiritual practice um, where I do yoga and meditation, but I just feel like it's just, it's a way of being. And honestly, if I didn't have those practices, I don't think it would be easy because mm. when I trip and fall or when I mess up or when I'm like doubting myself or anything that happens, it's like a blip that is like a common thing. I know what I need to do. Mm. <laughs> I go and I sit down and I spend a lot of time internally. And I really, first of all, like, you know, let go because a lot of the, I mean, you know, part of evolution is amazing, but the, the jump that apparently happened in, in mammals is the ability to mm. reflect. Mm-hmm. That's the jump. That's mm. the jump that even though we're similar in our constitution to, you know, apes and different, you know, but different, you know, creatures that have very similar constitution and people are asking, well, why are we so different? It's because of the ability to reflect mm. on your mind and to then make decisions about that reflection. So reflection is a key practice and the reflection requires a lot of honesty with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and to be able to listen. Um, so, yeah, that's a good question about practices. I should write about that. You, you should. You <laughs> should. I do feel like you need practices to stay anchored. I mean, I, I think of liberation as a practice, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I just love this uh, idea of, because um, I think often in the, in the world of innovation and transformation, there's an enormous amount of focus on learning. And the ability to learn and the ability to adapt and the ability to change, you know, but I just, I I find myself incredibly drawn to protection when you talk about it, Mm. you know, well, it's like, well, we're not talking about that. 
We're not talking about what is it, mm. what is it inside of me that actually needs to be protected as we go into these highly agile, often very volatile, rapidly changing, increasingly uncertain, blah, 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 blah. Take your adjectives from the latest mm. HBR article or whatever kind of spaces, you know? And then this piece of like, mm. oh, maybe there's beliefs in me that need to be protected. You know, what is the parts of me that I'm not willing to change, actually? What is the mm. kernel of clarity at the center of me that is just like, no, that's the constant, you know? And uh, all the constant for now, or, you know? So I just love that kind of like additive question, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's interesting because as you say, it makes me think, what if it was also part about unlearning, right? Because I feel like there's like, so in spiritual practice, there's the concept of neti neti, not this, not that. This is how you get to like the next level because you can't imagine it yet. You just know what it's not. Yeah. And so one of the things that, again, I always quote the latest book I'm reading, The Phenomenon of Man, he talks about how people evolve through their interactions with their enemies. He's like, imagine yeah. if we didn't have enemies. I was like, whoa, I didn't even think of it like that before. We, 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 we evolve based on what happens in our environment. Yeah. we have to protect what we need to change we want to so yeah it's, it's a very interesting question and i think people throw away the word throw around the word transformation all the time oh my goodness <laughs> and i'm always like what is meant by that oftentimes we don't really know what it takes that's why i have it as one of the edge leadership characteristics because i think to be an edge leader you have to understand the transformation process you have to be able to maybe help design for it maybe help other people because when you're going into something that you don't know Oftentimes we need guides to say, you know, this is going to happen. You need to step over this rock over here and then you're going to turn left. And so I feel like that's, that's what we need, right? To have a sense of where we might be going, which is why people at the edge, it's really important. Um, and for people to be, you know, transformations are really, really difficult way to it's a, it's not it's not for the faint of heart right it's really hard it's really hard. it takes so much discipline yes. and commitment to change oneself well, like we try to change other people but you try to change it yourself that <laughs> is exactly i mean like that's it's, as you both are talking that's exactly that quote and i don't even know who made it but everyone wants transformation but no one wants to change and mm. i was just like thinking because you know one of the practices you said was reflection and i was like and when we reflect, it's not about all the things other people are doing wrong. I mean, obviously it can be, but it's actually, it's like, it's that turning back to ourself and what needs to change in me and what are, I always say the brick walls in my mind that I like don't want to break through. Where are those brick walls yeah. and how do I keep moving through them? And it's fundamentally threatening. I'd be really interested. I'm, I want to read this book you're in because I'm, because I can imagine that when we are breaking down core beliefs it is fundamentally threatening, right, to ourselves. And so that's why so many of us don't do it. I have that experience in my real life, right? Like, you know, I can break through all the kind of surface beliefs, but like those fundamental beliefs are inherently threatening to my feeling of self. It's my ego. I get that. But that's, like you said, not for the faint of heart. That's not, it's in some ways, it's not even a journey we take together. We can take it with good friends who can give us some love as we do it. But like, we're the person who has to break that brick wall and look at that stuff and move from there. And so there is something that's inherently maybe lonely. Oh, yeah. Definitely. That's actually been the theme in, in, in my life right now. And you can be lonely even if you're surrounded by people, but you're in this different path that you have different language for. And, you know, even if people see you 
as a leader, and I appreciate that still can be very lonely, mm -hmm. you know, because I think we all yearn to be in community yeah. with peers. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. 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 It's like heartbreak is lonely. Do you think we yearn to be in community with peers because so much of this journey is fundamentally lonely? Mm. Like that those two things are actually really connected. Mm. <laughs> you know? It's really interesting because apparently as you, as you, in the evolutionary sort of trajectory, the, the bigger consciousness there's less of is what he says, right? There's less of. And so that like, for example, small animals, there's tons of them, but the, you know, so as you, and I think even within humans, which is where we are right now, I, I think about what's going on right now in the world. And, and if we have been in an, in an evolutionary path and now we're within consciousness, because that's the recent jump that we've made as humans, and then we see what's going on in the world right now. What does it mean? What does it mean? You know, if, if in evolution there are trajectories that are cut off, like they die, like they never keep evolving and yeah. there's only a few of them that keep evolving and we have yeah. artifacts of that we can see now and, and sort of infer the past what i when i think about the future i wonder i wonder because you know one person that i know said to me because i asked her i said well, you know because she works in, in in the area of consciousness i said what can you imagine for the future she said i think that we're going to have people living at different levels of consciousness more explicitly mm. and i was like wow Whoa. She's like, yeah, people at the fourth level are going to be right next to people at the second level. There are all these levels according to actually math and like science, fourth dimension. Um, and, you know, we're at the place where we're in the third dimension, breaking through fourth dimension, which is like a whole different, a whole different way of being, right? Um, with the fourth dimension, sometimes you can go direct to like the next state. You don't have to kind of travel the long path around. And so that's intriguing to me because if I think that, the folks at the lower levels are going to be running the world forever. Then what will I do? Mm. You know. So I'm just really curious about what comes next, as given where we are. If where we are now, which is you know race wars, <laughs> um, gender wars, uh, it's just it's really overwhelming. Mm. And you know, people are aware that children are suffering from this. Um, what can you tell, what we can tell our children about why, what to expect and what their role is in all of this, you know? So that's a really live question for me. What comes yeah. next? And yet, Cindy, it doesn't do feel, do? as I hear you, and I, and I, I know we have to wrap up here in just a few minutes, but as I hear you say, it's a really a live question for me, what comes next? with all the things that are happening in the world. And yet somehow you don't sound despairing to me. You actually sound curious and interested. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not despairing. I don't know why. Um, part of it is I, like I said, I protect myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I used to listen to the news every morning as I had breakfast and I realized that it gave me stomach aches because it's pretty crazy right now. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I have a spiritual teacher and when the pandemic started, she said, think of this as a retreat, as a spiritual retreat. Mm. And I was struck by how many people, including my daughter's friends, young people, were going crazy. They were like, I can't be alone. I don't want to be alone with myself. This is the, the inability to be alone with yourself right now, I think is like a big thing that I keep hearing. And so, yeah, I, I think a lot about that about, because when I'm in my most expanded states, I feel great. I don't want anything. Mm. All I want to do is give. Mm. And I'm like, how can I stay there? <laughs> you know? So I think something about our work has to really look at consciousness and expansion and just experiments in that. And even, and, and it's not like, it's not like they're not there. Like 
and I know we're wrapping up, but I just want to share that we're, we're planning our climate justice issue now, which is our fall issue. Mm-hmm. And in my work, I realized that Indigenous leaders are the leaders of the climate justice movement. Mm-hmm. We, they're not seen that way, but they are the leaders. They are apparently, from one data point that I, that I saw, 5% of the population of the world, and they steward 80% of the ecosystems of the world. Mm. And so I was looking at, as we have more and more Indigenous writers writing for MPQ, um, I, I identified a few that just blew my mind with what they were saying. Their whole paradigm was completely different. So I approached one of them. Her name is Adave Rialms, and she's at the First Nations Fund. And I said, Adave, can you curate, can you help us curate from your network and from your system and what you know, this next climate justice issue? And she was like, oh my God, I'd love to. What do you want to work on? She's like, well, the main thing that I want to put out there is that we're doing a lot and we're not seeing for what we're doing. This is like, what? And she said, well, you know, there's been, there have been these stories. And then she kind of did this thing with her hand. Like she didn't want to talk about it. Like she maybe expected me to like not give any credibility to what she was through these stories. Mm-hmm. I said, what stories? Now, whenever someone of such a person of color does it, I'm like more intrigued because I feel like it's a gem that we've been used to like subordinating and like submerging. So I'm like, what stories? And she said, well, you know, prophecies. And I was like, what prophecies? And she said, well, indigenous people received prophecies over a hundred years ago about what's happening today. We knew there was going to be a world without water and without food. And she said it to name all the stuff. She's like, and we've been preparing for it for the past 100 years. I said, what? Like what? And she says, well, for example, in Peru, there is, she says the name of this, this man who's indigenous. She's like, he runs the potato farm. So the potato was, I guess, originated in Peru. And so this farm has 300 varieties of potato. She says, they're keeping those 300 varieties alive because different varieties do well in different climates. Mm. So that's just one of the stories that we're yeah. going to have. Wow. <laughs> and so we're going to have like seven to 10 stories. Um, and I was like, I want to know what indigenous people are doing. And so and she, the other thing she said is, you know, there's this whole urgency thing about climate justice, which... Whenever someone flips something that seems to be like unquestionable, I'm even more intrigued. Because mm-hmm. everyone's like, we're not doing enough. We have to move quickly. She's like, there's so much urgency around it. That's the wrong approach. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, you have to be like multi-generational. Like you have to think about this like t- seven generations into the feet. Yeah. And so I just, I love that. Because mm. I feel like people think that when we get to these edges of our current system and it seems like it's going to explode, that it's going to end. Mm-hmm. But what happens is that the next thing happens, you know, yeah. the next flip. So I guess that's what keeps mm. me going. What's the next? What's the next flip? It's not just. It's not just a continuation of what we're doing now. It's oftentimes a reversal of what we're doing. So I'm really intrigued by those kinds of ideas, and I think that's what gives me hope. You know. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I I love it that. Uh, um. Your hope is fundamentally attached to curiosity <laughs> and unknowing mm, and, fa- yeah. and faith. Yeah. People are always like, you read so much, you know so much. I'm like, I don't know anything. I'm like, always like, I'm like, what? There's so much more that I don't, you know, yeah. it's not about like just wanting to accumulate knowledge. It's just that it is really, yeah. um, it's just, it, it's like, it's what propels me on my path of development. Yeah. And it's very full of energy and life. It feels like, yeah. you know, you talked about free fall earlier. You know, it feels like you've somehow found a way to fly in the midst of it. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Oh, my God. Yeah. I used to like when I was in free fall, I was pretty aware that I was in free fall. Mm. I, it felt like I was in free fall. And I had like, mm. I'm like, oh, is this like anxiety? 
And then after a while, I was like, oh, I'm just free falling. Mm. Just falling. Mm. <laughs> it just felt okay, you know, because it mm. lasted so long. I was like, yeah. when is this free fall going to end? It didn't end for years. Mm. When it ended, I landed here and everything turned around. I felt like I was at the point where I, that was what that free fall prepared me for, mm. you know? There you go. Love it. Well, we often finish these pods by asking if uh, if the person who's come on the pod, which is you today, could uh, has a quote or a poem or something that they're just carrying around in their back pocket in their lives that's just a point of reference for how they're turning up these days. And uh, what you got? There's actually this one sentence I've been contemplating for like the past two years. And it was um, offered to me by my spiritual teacher. And she said, what if we approached everything in life? No, she said, learn to embrace every situation like it's a gift. I actually have it on my wall and I look at it all the time. But if higher consciousness beings, if that's the way to be, then I try to practice that. Mm. What if I looked at everything as a gift? Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be putting that up on a... We're putting that up so I can see it. It's a great reminder. Honestly, that's why I painted, like, I have all these black walls in my room and different parts of the house so I can write on them because it, it actually helps to see it. It does. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, like I said, I think yeah. that's a way of protecting myself, but it's so yeah. protecting is like in quotes. It's yeah, really yeah. big. It's really about reorienting towards where you want to be, right. yeah. towards what you want to create, you know? Right. Yeah. Whatever we focus on, we create. So why not focus on the good? It can seem like unrealistic, but the realistic right now is pretty, pretty limited. So that's great. <laughs> that's Love that. It's so good. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. This has been amazing. I just feel thank you. and and just like the last time, Real I'm like, joy. there's so much more. So uh, maybe season <laughs> six. So <laughs> it's just so good to have both um, both your energy, just like that that part of it, mm-hmm. but your thinking and the way your reorientation right i just mm-hmm. i can feel this as a gift to our listeners and so i'm just like really oh, grateful thank you yeah thank mm-hmm. you so much for making the space 